everyone. My name is Rudy Orsica. I am a student veteran here at Syracuse University. Welcome to the next episode of Deep Dive. I have my guest today, Jose, and today we're going to talk about success, his goals, what success means to him, and will his definition of success ever change as he grows older and just goes through life. So Jose, I'll pass the mic on to you and just tell me about where you're from, what branch you did, and why why did you choose that branch? Thanks, Rudy. Yeah, so um, my name is Jose. Um, originally from Central California, around the same area as Rudy. And, um, I served five and a half years in the Marine Corps. Going through really my whole time in academia growing up, my focus was always on uh, pursuing higher education. That was something that my parents, they were both immigrants. They, um, they thought that's where I was going to find success the fastest. So I hadn't considered joining the military up until uh, spring semester high school year and didn't really weigh my options all that well. Person to ever join the military out of my family. So I tell people this all the time. The only person who I could really ask about their time in the Marine Corps was uh, my best friend's stepfather. Kind of explained what I thought I was going to do, join the military, uh, still ultimately going to pursue a higher education. His only advice to me was field that I was uh, opting to do, which was intelligence analyst, open up more opportunities for me than anything else. So the recruiter, you know, did me justice in making sure that I was set up for success, except for a signing bonus, but when it came to deciding on whether or not I would join the Marine Corps, it wasn't really whether or not I was weighing my options. It was more so, okay, this is the option I chose. Uh, it seems like the Marine Corps is, you know, really valuing what I bring more so than anyone else at that point, any institution, academic or uh, military. So it was all about getting the most of what I could at that point. Okay, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit what you said. You're the only person in your family to do at this point. Mm-hmm. You're the son of immigrants. Mm-hmm. That is very tough. One, being a son of immigrants, you're the first one to do everything pretty much in your family as new. But two, being the first one in the military is very tough because... If your uncle, aunt, older brother, older sister join the military, that means has a predisposition of what it means. Like you're not going to be able to answer uh, their phone calls or texts. You're not going to be able to do a lot of things as you normally would. So that is a learning curve, not only for you, but your family. And how did they take it? Pretty big reveal. I, I've only ever said this in small settings with people I'm close to. Um, my parents didn't know what they were signing when I gave them the paperwork at 17. They didn't know where I was uh, 13 weeks in basic training. And um, it wasn't until I was at my uh, initial training pipeline in uh, California that I was confronted by other Marines at that point to, you know, make my parents aware of what I was doing. Uh, by that point, I kind of let them know, you know, I'm, I'm learning, studying, which I, I, never, I was never really transparent about what I was doing. And I was, that I was in the military. So um, I told them I was studying, I was working. Um, that I had was able to send money over if needed. So I think we had an open communication. And so when I made the reveal that what I was actually doing was um, serving was shock, you know, anger at the, you know, the fact that I was hiding that from them. But since then, it's all been about the objectivity of it, what I was really doing, and that I was making good judgments and good decisions. And ultimately just letting them know. My dad took it the easiest. My mom was mainly just frustrated because of her implicit biases against what it meant to serve. Then there's been just more of the same, whether it was jokes or awkward conversations about my service when I was with extended family. But that's just some of the things that you become self-aware of and you learn to work past. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing. That's pretty big news. And I will say this, like, um, growing up in a very, uh, we're both Hispanic. Growing up in a minority household, especially Hispanics who um, haven't lived in America too long or that generations here, it's a total different environment than growing up in a very Americanized household. Certain topics are just a little harder to talk about 
and certain things are hard to get into. Like the U.S. military is just, I think, a sensitive subject for a lot of Hispanics or Latino heritage. So I imagine that did take a that was, took a lot of toll on you as a person to have the courage to tell your family eventually. But as good to hear now that it's going pretty well, but at least your father and your mom coming around to your life and you're doing pretty well for yourself. Like you're at Syracuse University now and you know, you went through a lot of things in the military. So you saw this career in the Marines. What exactly did you do in the Marines? Right. So um, the official title was cryptologic linguist for Arabic. So I went and studied Arabic at that uh, initial pipeline that I mentioned. Um, and then I went on to another school to learn more about tactical communications and how we could analyze that for intelligence value. I ended up doing that my entire career whether it was translating Arabic or analyzing digital networks. So I did that in California, and then I ended up deploying, where I got to work with different units, whether it was translating, interpreting Arabic, or putting together as many pieces to the puzzle as possible to so help each other out over there. When you signed up for that job, did you know you signed up for? Yeah. Like I said, like my recruiter was transparent about anything that didn't in- include that bonus um which is a huge shame the bonus how much would it have been i joke because the bonus wouldn't have kicked in unless i graduated from my language school which ultimately i did a friend of mine who did have that on his paperwork did not finish or did not uh graduate from that language school missed out on five thousand dollars five thousand dollars is a lot of money especially like you said like you're, you're uh, if your family needs it then that could have been a couple of rankings sent them make their month or a couple months a little easier for them so the, the recruiter like, did not only you the service, but your family the service. Yes and no. I, I, I understand that there are some legitimate horror stories out there, but I think I've always known that my recruiter was always willing to work with me personal level. So I didn't ever think he was objectively trying to keep me away from $5,000. I just think that's sort of the, the awareness that he has of his own job. So. Well, that's good that overall you had a really good recruiter. Because I think the recruiter does make a difference in your job, not in your job, but your uh, branch you serve. Because I've had other student veterans here, and they tell me they went through the army recruiter, and they like totally blew them off. They said, oh, you're not, you're not going to do good enough in that job, so uh, you should lower your expectations for a job. And so they just walked into the Navy recruiter, and they helped them out. Or vice versa, they walked out of the Navy recruiter and to the Marine recruiter. So that's pretty good that overall you had a decent uh, relationship with your recruiter. So if you're comfortable sharing, so how does your family feel about you being a student at Syracuse University? Or do they understand, like, the con... Not understand because, you know, everybody in the world is smart something. But if you don't, if you don't understand, like, how hard it is to get into a, a R1 school or D1 school, like Syracuse University, you know, maybe they don't appreciate it as much. How does your family take it? Do they understand what it took for you to get here? Not really. I think they're, they just have different um, hopes and expectations of, of myself. So when it came to, you know, places that I would look at, first thing my mom would ask about is, are you applying to the local university? Are you staying local? Are you staying in the state? When are you going to be able to come home? I think it was when I was able to talk to my brother because I obviously attached to being first person in my family to join the military. I'm a first generation college student as well with my brother. And um, he has a, he just had a couple years on me. And so he was able to help me with better understanding some of what went into my decision. Um, but ultimately, uh, when I communicated that I was making an objective decision based off of the resources that were afforded to veterans, that was a specific justification to me mm-hmm. that when I communicated that to them, they were they had to understand. Well, um, it's kind of cool because growing up in a minority house, household, they might not put like the highest value on education always. 
or the highest value of certain things. But I feel they do put a high value on just like caring for one another and being a hard worker and a lot of other things that at times gets uh, thrown on the rug in like more traditional American homes. Because you, know, you have to go be the best and go to college and do all these things and be a lawyer, doctor, whatever it may be. And then we love each other, we care for each other, like it does like in a, mi- a minority household. And I think that's kind of one thing that's really cool. Like even though it was hard for us to get here, we're going to bring our background of like actually caring for one another and helping one another along the road. And when you combine that with our college education, we will hopefully receive one day. I think it's going to mesh pretty well to really help us in life down the road. Definitely. I think I've always brought a sense of individuality and personality um, to the diverse group that I got to work with in the Marine Corps. And people recognized instances of my work ethic. And then I, I think going to your point about you know where we come from, there's it's not a global tight-knit group being Hispanic, but it's c- communities, those micro-communities that we come from that develop in people a sense of hard work, love for one another, unique aspirations that we probably don't see in some of the classrooms we are here, we, we are in. Yeah, for like even like some of my classrooms, like for like my anatomy physiology class, they're like the professor tell us like you guys are in competition for one another, even right now. And like which it, it is true, it's kinda hard to be put in that situation. Like like man, we're not gonna be a professional for another couple more years and like we're already like you almost always don't even help each other almost because you have to score better than the person next to you. Which is it's a perspective I understand. That's how we can see how people interact that way professionally. Uh, as competitors, from where I stand, I see there's plenty of opportunity for people to collaborate in wherever field they end up going into. So I always find it interesting when people either one want to overly emphasize being collaborative, or the, or the exact opposite, overemphasize you're competing with that other individual for that A, or you're you shouldn't want to share your information with that individual because that can come back to bite you. And yeah, it's yeah. kind of interesting, but. You, I think you see instances of both in the professional world. Yeah, this is definitely comes about by you because I feel like networking is such a huge deal. Like, mm-hmm. you never know who's gonna be what or do what. So I feel like we might as well just help each other get to school. And then once we're like out of school, we're all like from my perspective, like all like physical therapists or PAs or MDs. I think that's when the competition. Like, I'm gonna build the best physical therapist clinic in the county, and then that's probably where the competition would be. Well, like, you should just work to get there to even get to that title. That's why I think we should just help each other as much as we can to a point. As well, much as you can. Hearing your background, a very interesting background, you came a long way. What is your your own definition of success? I kind of pride myself in always believing in balance, whether it's in how I approach a job or it's how I approach my life. So my ultimate idea of success is, you know, having a balanced social, financial, and physical, emotional mental sort of level of level that I can be proud of. I think financially, I want to be able to provide for myself and provide for others and use that to uh, make a difference in where I want to um, call in my community. I think professionally, I want to work somewhere where I find the work fulfilling. Socially, I still want to maintain, you know, that sense of community, that sense of friendship with individuals. And, you know, when it comes to my personal health, physical, mental, and emotional, I think my ultimate idea of success is just being able to reach a certain point in all of those things and really striking that balance. Yeah, I think balance is a very, like, it's a huge factor now. I think, I don't know if we think like that because of the military, because the military, like, um, 
they just work you, work you, work you for a long time. And they don't really, they're starting to now, like two years ago, they didn't really care about your mental health. And I almost feel like now they still don't, but they say they do. Because I just read an article yesterday about uh, a submarine and the, the Scranton that had, they just fired the commanding officer because he just made everybody work nonstop. If you were injured, uh, he didn't care. You're still going out to sea. And it was just a terrible work environment. People did not want to work for him. People hated the Navy because of it. And he just gave the military a bad look because he didn't care. He didn't care about the person as a person, he cared about the person as a number to do a job. And I think mental health is becoming a huge factor in the U.S. I think that timeline you gave is pretty interesting um, than, you know, the last couple of years, because when I first finished my training pipeline and I was in and for myself personally, because it took somewhere between two and two and a half years to finish. When I finally got to go do my job for the first time, I was ready to hit the ground running. And when I show up, it was a really rapid transition from, you know, wartime objective needs to get complete before anyone else goes home to peacetime let's you know transition to eight hour work days we're not running a 24 7 shop anymore let's get some tangible information down recertify it on you know all their qualifications like to make sure people are doing everything they need to do administratively that perspective for you know key leaders in the military to keep everyone razor sharp but also there's growing need to ensure that the military is maintaining a sense of control over what people do and how they're doing it. Yeah, you know, I understand what you're saying, and I agree. There's like, so I've been thinking about this since I've been out. Like, mostly didn't really care about me as a person too much. A few, there's a few leaders that I really did care, but overall, majority didn't. I was trying to think of a, like a solution. Like, what? Like, once I go educated, can I go back and change something? And it, it's almost you can't. It's such a fine line because the job still has to get it no matter what. We still have to be the powerhouse of the world, right? We are the U.S. Like, our military still has to have a presence just in case. We're still a military. It's still a service that people sign up for. But there has to be some way to implement mental health. Like, if you are going through issues, and but your your command is about to go out to sea or overseas or a deployment, are you going to feel comfortable saying, like, guys, like, I cannot go because of my stress. I just can't handle it. Or can you just kind of suck it up and, like, like how the military done for years and potentially cause even more mental health to you and the people around you. Right. I think when it comes to the issue of mental health in the military, that's such a systemic issue. You know, I remember the popular statistic was, you know, the number of Marines who have died by suicide compared to the ones who have died in combat. That was sort of my first realization that, for one, that the military has a structure that looks out for itself because that's how it treats itself as its own entity. I have it set up to where people who drink the Kool-Aid, they are in it to make sure that that structure remains strong. You mentioned the strongest in the world. And so unless you're willing to buy into it, you need to be able to access the resources available to, you know, balance, again, contributing to the mission and almost like keeping one foot out the door. That's how. That's what it felt like to me is I put in a hard day's work, but I'm going to night classes because I never was content with seeing myself 20 years down the line wearing the uniform. And it's just, I think it's because I was never, you know, I never felt vulnerable to be indoctrinated to doing that. I think if you want to pick that fight with um, a structure as big as the military, joining efforts, different organizations, different groups who are either 
finding those individuals however they can or trying to enact change in policy, I think that's probably the best bet to be able to really implement change. And so I feel like uh, you say you have one foot in, one foot out almost. Well, I'm sure you still did very good at your job. It's just at night you're preparing for the future, right? You're living the present, preparing for the future. So when you go in at 18... Uh, very young. I went in at 18. How old were you when you went? Uh, I had paperwork done by se- at 17. Oh, so that's, that's younger than me, yeah. It's very easy for, like you said, drink the Kool-Aid. I remember the first couple of years, I was all in my head. Like, it was almost like a brainwash. Like, they molded me to be that jerk, that guy that's going to, like, talk down to the newest people. Like, we're going to toughen each other up. We're going to have tough skin. That was me. And then as I got closer to my separation day, I was like, this cannot be right. This cannot be it. Like, I cannot live a life of just, I got told stuff, so I'm going to tell the next guy stuff. Like, no, we should be able to help each other. Luckily, I was like, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world by any means, but like, luckily I was smart enough to like come to a realization, like, this is not for me. I cannot do 20 of this life. So I was like, you know, that's when I started like looking at schools and, you know, looking at my avenues. It was possible. So everything that the military has done, like to me, like mental health, physical health, whatever, it was, it was a lot. But I always say the best decision I ever made in my life was enlisting in the military. But the second best decision was separating from the military. Because of the military, we're here, right? Well, at least I, I didn't have the best grades in high school. Or I got to come to like a really great institution like Syracuse University. I have the National Veteran Resource Center. Or all the resources there, from the vice chancellor to Ron Novak to a lot of people, that are there at our disposal to help us to succeed in life. And if it wasn't for the military, I, I might not even be here right now. So I am thankful for the military, but... Like anything else is not a perfect and it could be. I always kind of felt like my my past has been a product of my decisions. And I don't ever see, you know, my the, my old high school, uh, the football team, or the English teacher in the middle school that I managed to convince me to give me an A. Um, I, I don't see any instance as the contributor to where I am today. I think it's been those those processes at each point, the... The journey, not the destination sort of mentality where my time in the military was contributed to where I am today because of the time that I put in into different things, into the relationships that I built. So whereas I don't miss the, miss the Marine Corps, I don't actively identify as a Marine, even though I objectively recognize that once a Marine, always a Marine. I don't see that as a personal identifier because, you know, you as an individual have so many layers and you can go back to every part of it and microanalyze bits and pieces to that and how that contributes to your character today. Yeah, I know. I uh, get what you're saying and it does make sense. Like, uh, I think that is a good point. Like, I just dislike talking about uh, the military every weekend with a bar or a group of friends. I don't like it because we're not there no more. I want to live in the present and plan for the future. So I really like that saying live in the present plan for the future because we're students now we shouldn't be joining the student life like yeah we have responsibilities and this school is hard on its own we have a lot of classes a lot of responsibilities but like we shouldn't be fantasizing about the past like we did that and that was good that was a great time we'll talk about it sometime and but talk about now like hey like who did you meet like who's your last networking person like what event did you go to and uh, how you're planning for grad school or job after we should be talking about those things now what we already did we're talking about what we're about to do What's next in our life? That's why I personally think about it. And, um, but yeah, you make a lot of good points. And, you know, you said about the layers, like I think like Shrek said it best, humans are like onions, a lot of layers. Oh yeah. Anytime you can quote Michael Myers. <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think the biggest thing is you mentioned that you drank the Kool-Aid when you were younger, you know, this idea of indoctrination. I think, I think it's just difficult to have a sense of being personable when you come off as indoctrinated. You know, when I have these conversations with some of the younger kids here, the traditional student and hey, so 
you know, here's me, here's where I'm from, here's all that. And then they're like, hi, this is me. This is my major. This is what I want to do here. These are my classes. I didn't, I'm not your counselor. I'm not your, I'm not your academic advisor. Why, why are you telling me what classes you're taking? Like, what are you, who are you? Um, and it's, it's difficult to have those conversations with anyone when they just have a switch in their brain to talk about one thing and one thing alone. Yeah, it is hard because like if you do concentrate from high school to college, like you're going to identify as, oh, I am a uh, equipment student and I take all these classes or I'm a, you know, Falk student and take all these classes. And that's not you. Like, what, what do you do? Like I am, like for me, example, I am a, a student at the Falk for the exercise science program. But like I had this podcast, I'm in multiple clubs. You like football. You watch yeah. 49ers. You, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, I haven't met anyone with any in, uh, interest. Like met a few people who like skiing. Like, but like, where is that in our conversation? Where are those in the icebreakers that we have to do every uh, fall semester when you're in a new class and everyone's yeah. finally getting back into the flow and everyone's like, oh, let's get, try to get to know each other. And yeah. you, you hear the same five basic things. If I hear, if I hear Netflix one more time, <laughs> you know those conversations. Tell me your your definition of success is being well-rounded well-balanced and that is phenomenal because I think uh, most people definition says oh man I want a uh, vacation home in Hawaii I want a big house I want a beautiful significant other all that stuff so I think yours is very like it's very true and that you could be well-rounded in either you're filthy rich or underprivileged whatever you fall you could be well-rounded yeah I think that's just my cop-out answer it's like what superpower would you want and you say I want a superpower where I can have all the superpowers <laughs> that's what I mean when I when I say balance is I, I just want a little bit of everything do you think your definition of success will change as you grow older find a significant other maybe have some kids yeah I think just because you know I find I want to be balanced because that would help me become the best version of myself and so I think down the line, I don't, or I can't see a future for myself where I don't want that for someone else. Being my little sister, being future kids, you know, the best version of ourselves, how I'd probably put it for a, me and my significant other at that point. So I don't think the the goal changes, it's just the audience or the... So you would instill that in your kids then, your future kids and your maybe your sibling or anybody wants to listen? I think so, just because there's so many different things you can do. But to be the best version of yourself, I think it's finding that joy in something you want to do is only part of it. I understand. That's, uh, that's well put, being the best version of you. What is your idea of career? For me, like my, you know, my career, you're like once I graduate from hopefully physical therapy school, I get in, like the 49ers call me, hey, want a job? Heck yeah, I'm going to go there right now. Like, you know, you have an idea like, hey, maybe Mark Cuban calls you. Or I think I, when I go back to it, I think my dream job would be some sort of business intelligence analyst for X, Y, and Z Corporation. I've never seen my career as the part of my life that hits every part of my soul. So I never, for instance, I never saw myself working for, we're both 49ers fans, so I'll offer them again. I'll, I never saw myself working for like the 49ers front office, whether even though I'm like an analytical, analytical minded person, I didn't see myself. Why is that? Because I was very involved with community service. I was very involved with um, my younger sibling uh, in high school. So when it came down to, you know, those conversations you have in high school, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? It never it never struck me that I could do something that, that fulfilled something within my, what I truly enjoyed doing. I always saw it as a means to an end to be able to either provide me the platform or fund the platform that I use to serve my community, to be able to help my family and also grant me the um, peace of mind financially and the time to, you know, have other interests. That's pretty interesting by your answer. 
it almost circles back to our very first conversation in this podcast where, um, you know, growing up in the minority household, they don't always put emphasis on like having the best job, a well paying job, the best living, the best uh, location. They put emphasis on, you know, helping each other out, loving each other and and being there for one another, being a man of your word, being uh, and then. So your answer that you want to help your community one day, you want to be there for your community. It almost just plays in like you're almost coming full circle. Like you started here and you worked your way out of it. Not necessarily that was a bad community, but you worked your way out of it or you have the option to go back now. I always tell myself, if I go back to my community I grew up in, it's because I want to go back because I am choosing to live, not because I have to live there. Right. I think the idea that I have about going back to my community eventually as, you know, someone who can contribute to everyone's success, it also goes back to that conversation we had about, you know, can you, you know, support mental health resources in the military? Can you go back to the military and, you know, help others find that? Um, and I kind of I kind of see them both the same. Uh, I would hope to go back to my community and I would hope that I was the only one who tested well at coming out of that that MEPS building because I took the, the test the same day as two other people who I shared classes with and they didn't have the same options as me as picking my career choice because, you know, that's just where my community, it felt like they were in this weird... It's like a loop or like a never-ending cycle. Cycle, yeah. Like I, I was hearing this song, it was, it was a rap song, it was like, being poor, being on the pier is almost like a disease that you just can't get rid of. Like, it just we're just in a loop but we're just working to to live but we're not like actual living we're right. just making enough to survive but it all it, it's all it all goes back together like I mean, we've made like five different callbacks in this podcast already yeah. but like you think about you know poverty is only a disease because the rich already have the riches and they can do what they want to keep them people who find authority and are in charge in the military will always you know act in their own best interests and support one another i mean it goes past the military at that point it goes to you know government it goes to anything you can find a corporation the ones with ultimate authority and are in charge are going to look out for one another yeah no it definitely is that's like it goes back to networking like you have to talk to one another because like you said they're going to look out for one another because they know each other and uh just circle back a little bit to like you know growing up in the underprivileged area and you said a test score you hope it's not you're not the only one that scored high the odds are you probably were one of the only the few people that did and not because they're those people are like dumb or anything everybody's good at something but it just uh if you're in the, in the privilege area you have less resources to you you have less tutors your books might be outdated and it just you really have to have a drive in you like no other to get out of there and just just be successful like the true like uh the traditional american sense of success you know have a great career and get educated you know have your options too like just to have options in your life when you leave circuit university you're gonna have options whatever and you're gonna choose i want to do this not not you have to do this circuit university is making it possible because you work to get here when your past decisions to choose a life you want for you your future significant other your future kids you you are making it possible through the traditional American way, but that same traditional way made it even harder for you to make it here. So I just feel like um, it is true. Like if you grew up in an underprivileged area, if step one is, you know, let's say any point, step one for everybody in the world or every American, if you grew up in an underprivileged area, you start like five steps under step one just to like, get to study later, get to work harder, get to go to your way to, to meet people. Your parents might not know English. You, they're not going to be able to help you with uh, college applications, military applications, uh, you name it. They might not be able to help you. 
do. Or if they know English, they haven't done it. They haven't applied to college or went to the military. So it just, we have a harder hill to climb and steeper hill, but it's definitely possible. It just, you have to work way harder. Right. I think, I find it funny because, again, we both came from similar communities. I don't know um, how different you felt from your classmates growing up, but whenever I, I, I give the line that I had to translate for my parents during PTA meeting, the response I get is crazy because it's like, I mean, what'd you guys expect? Yeah. Um, so to be honest, I, I was very, kind of funny, I was very fortunate in an unfortunate community because most of my parents, my dad was, was born in Mexico. So he's like, I'm his generation zero, I'm generation one here. But they both spoke English. But that doesn't speak like perfect English, but he speaks enough to get by. And, uh, you know, he went to a, took a long road, but he finally got a trade in, trade school. You know, he's working like mm-hmm. a good job where I never had to like, oh man, I'm so hungry, so there's no food because my parent works hard. Mm-hmm. And they got us a situation where I don't have to worry about like, you know, that type of stuff. So I was very fortunate in, in the very under privilege area so i did feel a little different in my community and um maybe not the same sense you did but i just felt like wow like i almost know that something's possible not because like my parents are like these you know lawyers or doctors or anything but like it's possible i understand we grew up in a very underprivileged area so i might have to work so hard to get out of it and like you you have to work probably even harder than i did because you had to translate and i saw a lot of my friends had to translate for the parent and i was like man thank goodness i don't have to do that but you you did how'd that feel normal normal well it felt normal but it's something that i i recognize didn't still face today and that's the hardship of feeling like to you i might be capable of translating right and so maybe your first thought is he has the great grasp of spanish and he's able to translate spanish and english as soon as I go home, I wish he spoke better Spanish. <laughs> kind of a, an influence on individuals when they feel like they don't belong with, you know, that community and they don't feel comfortable in the community they're in now where they're like in between. They're in that weird in between. I just had a class where that conversation came up and, you know. It's just another thing that I mentioned this or said this earlier too. It's like as soon as I became self-aware of the fact that I'm good enough at Spanish that I can translate and then I'm also not good enough that I can have like niche conversations with my grandparents. As soon as I became self-aware of that, I just sort of buried that and get and kept moving. Yeah. No, it definitely puts people in like a, like a limbo situation. Like you said, like uh, I was talking to my buddies the other day and it was like, I was like, ah, man, I got a complain about something. Something that was relatively minor, but for academic it was pretty big. Mm. He's like, dude, what are you complaining about, man? You go to Syracuse University, your life's great. You're doing all these awesome things in the world. And I was oh, okay. Uh, I, I forget, like, I'm talking to my friends back home. I grew up way rougher than the average student at Syracuse University. So, like, anything I say that's, like, short of, like, you know, I broke my leg again, they're not gonna, they're not gonna feel sympathy for me. No one feels sympathy for you in those type of communities. And uh, you said something about it was normal for you. It is quite funny, like, uh, you grow up in those type of communities, everything's normal. You don't even know you're poor. You don't even know you're in the privilege uh, until you get a little older and you venture out because i was like it wasn't normal for kids to drink straight out of the water hose like when they were playing or doing just stuff like that or like uh there's the orange trees where i grew up and we just threw oranges at each other hit just like well on people in the face and everything and that wasn't normal it just like we couldn't afford a whole like hockey set or whatever you know all these like or a golf set and it's just kind of uh i'm very happy though I, li- I grew up there but i'm glad that if everything goes to plan my kids will not have to grow up there my future kids right i, I think that's that's something that you see a lot of in sports entertainment where they talk about these athletes who aren't necessarily worried about going back to that struggle and i thought it was always like it had to be that extreme 
it had to be growing up in rough neighborhoods to making multiple uh, millions of dollars a year and getting all that notoriety. I thought it had to be that extreme feel that, but I think I'm just having that realization that uh, because I had hand-me-downs growing up that where I'm at today is the same thing to my degree. Yeah, yeah. I think like, you know, we've, uh, it's funny in the eyes of people back home, you came like a extraordinary long way, right? Like you were in the military and you were stationed, where exactly were you stationed? I was in Southern California. So I, I was seven hours away, but same state from back same home. Same state, whole different area. Yeah. So as long as like, what, like San Diego? Yeah, LA, San Diego, exactly. Yeah, uh, San Diego is a lot different from the Central Valley. Yeah. And then you did like awesome things in the military and now you're in New York at a fine institution. Like, uh, it's just funny, like back home, like you're doing like the most in life. You're already like, you know, you're kicking butt. And then here, you're just like, oh, you're just another student. Yeah, you're, you're doing what's expected of you. It's just like two worlds. Like they're just, no matter, my, my father always says like, you know, things like some people like in power, like the politicians and whatnot are like disconnected from the reality. And I think that's true. Like I've seen students here who are like some things that come out of their mouth are just, they're disconnected from the reality of growing up when both your parents are not doctors, both your parents are not lawyers. I can see already they're disconnected. I don't blame them because how can I blame someone that doesn't know any better? They they never had to even drive by these communities or experience them or know anybody. Right. I think I would love to find a sense of belonging somewhere where I don't have to explain myself every time. But I think I recognize being here that some people just need to hear it from another person and they need to have that conversation either for the first time or they need to have they need to hear it again but you mentioned you know being in between two worlds I thought an interesting thing that I thought of was I felt like once I was in the military that I was in between two worlds but now that I'm here I feel like the two worlds that I'm trying to compare to one another is the career fulfillment that I got in the military to the career that I'm looking for now as opposed to where I've come from from my career prospects back home I've almost sort of elevated the expectation for myself because of what I did in the military. Yeah. I thought, you know, you have a very interesting story and, and it's pretty awesome, man. Like what you're doing and your goals and how far you've come and sure uh, your family and friends back home too expect a lot from you and um, I'm sure you're getting all your goals in life. I'm sure you will. Well, everybody, thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of Deep Dive and thank you to my guest, Jose, and for explaining what his definition of success is, what he tends to do in life and if his initial success will change as he has kids, which it seems like it won't and he'll implement his definition of success to his kids of being well-balanced and mental health career and life and thank you for tuning in